Pastor Greg read the verses that we're going to be studying today. And if you look at the verses just before, I want to remind you of the point that Paul has just made. It's going to help us make sense of what he will do today. The point of verses 20 through 28 was that because Christ has been raised from the dead, Christians have hope in the life to come. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, Christians are absolutely certain that in the life to come, Christ will raise us from the dead. He will destroy His enemies. And He will restore the kingdom. And Paul made those points because not all of the Corinthians believed that. In fact, you could look up at verse 12 and see that some of the Christians in Corinth did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That one day, Christians' bodies and souls will be reunited to live forever with God in His kingdom. And so Paul makes the point. And now today in our text, Paul is really going to ask a question. It's a rhetorical question. You know those kinds of questions where you're asking a question... But you're not really asking a question, you're making a point. But here is the question, I can summarize it for you. If hope is confined to this life only, then what is the purpose and the benefit of me, Paul is asking, surrendering my life to Christ? That's the question he asks. What is the point of me surrendering, giving up my life for Christ? Because that's what I'm doing, Paul is saying. What is the point of that if hope is confined to this life only, if there's nothing beyond? And the assumed answer to that question is, there is no point. There is no point to surrendering your life to Jesus if it is hope in this life only and the dead are not going to be raised and Jesus is not going to defeat His enemies and He's not going to restore His kingdom, there would be no point. But Christ has been raised. Paul says that over and over again. And so the point that Paul is making by asking that question is the hope that we have in the life to come enables us to surrender this life to Christ. That's the point he's making. Because we do have hope in a life to come that enables us to give this life up and to surrender this life to Christ. So quickly, what does that mean, surrender? What does it mean to surrender your life? What does it mean to give up your life? And let me read to you these words from Jesus. He said this to His disciples. And what He describes here is surrender. It's in Luke chapter 9. 
And it's in verses 23 through 25. What does it mean to surrender your life? Here's a good description from Jesus himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? In those verses... Jesus was telling his disciples what it meant to be a Christian. And he says it means that you follow me. So Christian. This is what Jesus says it means to be a Christian. It means to follow Jesus. To imitate his example and to obey his teaching. It means that you will take up your cross daily. That means that to be a Christian is to make a commitment that is going to lead to rejection. And it may even lead to your death. It does today in certain parts of the world. So to be a Christian is to live a life that is most likely going to lead to rejection. It may even lead to you losing your life And then third, it means denying yourself. It means that you have things that you want and you have desires and you want to control your life. We all do, but we give that up as a Christian. We deny that. And so in a word, in a word, what Jesus is describing is surrender. The Christian life means Surrender. It means to relinquish all control of your life to God. Think about that. It means to give up all control of your life to God. Not to someone else, that would be wrong. Not to yourself, that would be wrong. But to give up control of your life to God. And that is made possible... By the resurrection of Christ. Which brings us hope in the life to come. So that we could give this life up for Him. That's the point that Paul is going to make. And I hope we'll see that. Let's pray before we go any farther though. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word today. We ask that You would by Your Spirit and through this Word that You would change us, change our minds, change our hearts and our wills, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find today's text on page 904. I'm going to divide this text into three sections so we'll look at verse 29 and then verses 30 through 32 
and then verses 33 through 34. So remember Paul's point, our hope in the life to come, it enables us to surrender this life to Christ. That's where he's headed. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Remember, in the verses just before, look at them with me. Paul's main point was that because Christ has been raised from the dead, Christians have hope in the life to come. And one of the things that we are certain of is that Christ will raise us from the dead. And now verse 29 begins with the word, otherwise. Which means that Paul is about to say something that would only make sense if the circumstances were different than what he proposed in verses 20 through 28. So I think the NIV makes it more plain in their translation. This is how they put verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? In other words, if Christians will not be resurrected, what is the point of being baptized for the dead? Now that makes grammatical sense. But there's another obvious problem. What in the world is baptism for the dead? That's the question that we have. We understand grammatically what he's saying, but what is baptism for the dead? Well, I'll tell you what. At the beginning of this week, I was completely clueless. And I read a lot, seven different commentaries, articles. I studied deeply, and by God's grace, by the end of the week, I was still clueless. (laughs) That happens sometimes. But everyone is. I mean, if you read about this verse, it's one of those places where everyone's pretty clueless. No one takes a very dogmatic stand on it. It's one of those texts that it would have been obvious to the Corinthians, apparently, because he doesn't say much about it. But to us, it's obscured. So all that said, let me give you my best guess as to what Paul is talking about. I feel like I should at least do that. The most popular opinion is that some of the Corinthians were, they were being baptized on behalf of Christian friends they had that died before they had an opportunity to be baptized. And so if you started reading different opinions on this verse, you're going to find that one pretty quickly. That's a common interpretation. Now, I think there's no way that is true. I think there's no way that is true because knowing Paul If that was actually going on, he would not have passed up the opportunity to condemn it. That's my opinion. There's no way that they were actually doing that. So it's more likely to me, based on texts like, when you can write these down if you want to look later, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, and Colossians 2, 11 through 12, that Paul is speaking 
figuratively here, not literally. So we know that through baptism, a Christian is united to Christ's death and resurrection. Those passages make that really clear. That through baptism, a Christian is united to Christ's death and resurrection. And water baptism, you've probably seen a water baptism. Water baptism, immersion, it displays that union. A Christian's body and soul, because that's who we are, a Christian's body and soul has been united to Christ in His death and burial. And it displays that a Christian's body and soul has been united to Christ in His resurrection. Raised to life. Well, what is the point of that sign if our bodies will die and not be raised with Him? Baptism wouldn't actually be necessary. And it wouldn't be telling the truth. It would be figuratively a baptism of the dead. It would be baptizing a body that will not be raised, but will one day just die and disappear. I think that's what Paul probably means. There's a lot of people throughout history that would agree with that, but that's all the time I'm going to give it. We should move on to the part of our text, the rest of it, that it is, it's crystal clear. It's very plain. So we've got two more sections here. The first one is verses 30 through 32. Let me begin by reading it. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. As true as his pride in the Corinthians is the fact that Paul willingly suffered every single day of his life. And what did he gain? What was the point? What is the meaning of that if one day he would not be raised from the dead? That is the point that Paul is making in these three verses. To put it more succinctly, what is the point of a Christian surrendering their life to Christ if there is no resurrection? What is the point of personal sacrifice for Christ's sake if we have no hope in the life to come? That's his question. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? And they were. Why are we in danger every hour? Paul was constantly in danger. People wanted him to disappear. People wanted Paul dead. The irreligious, especially the religious, Paul had enemies everywhere he went. 
He speaks of it figuratively in verse 32 and says, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. That is, I had to fight against monsters in that city. People who opposed God and people who opposed me and wanted to tear me limb from limb. He was in danger every hour. And why? What is the point of keeping myself in harm's way? Verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. The Corinthians knew that Paul loved them. They knew that Paul took pride in them. In fact, back in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Paul calls them his beloved children, and he thinks of them, them as his kids. He thinks of himself as their spiritual father. And like any good father takes pride in his children, he took pride in them as his spiritual children. And they knew that. And so he says here, as true as my pride in you is the fact that I have willingly suffered every single day of my life. Why? He's asking that question. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, we're told that it was so bad at one point that Paul despaired of life itself. He wanted to die. And in chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, he described his suffering in great detail. Paul had been imprisoned. He had been beaten with rods many times nearly to death. He'd been shipwrecked three times. He had almost died of exposure in cold weather. He frequently went without sleep. He was frequently hungry without food or water. And he summarizes all that here in verse 31 by saying, I die every day. That's what personal sacrifice looked like for Paul. For Paul, that's what it looked, that was the cost of surrendering his life to Christ. And all of that builds to his question in verse 32. What do I gain? You hear that word gain. What do I profit? What is the benefit? What is the value of this? If... Humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So much of the suffering for Paul, it was self-inflicted in a sense. All he had to do was deny Christ. All he had to do was stop preaching the gospel. All he had to do was stop telling people they were sinners and start telling them they were good people. All he had to do was bow his knee to Caesar rather than God. That's all he had to do. And the suffering would have stopped. Do you understand what Paul is saying? What is the point of personal sacrifice if the dead are not raised? What is the point of living for Christ 
if there is nothing to gain in death. Think about this. If this life is all there is, and if there is zero hope in the life to come, and we will not be raised, and Christ is he's not going to conquer His enemies, and there is no paradise, there is no kingdom, then why don't we just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? Why not just give ourselves to self-indulgence? Why delayed gratification? Why, if this is all we've got and we don't know how long we've got, And what we do here has no implication for the life to come because there is no life to come. Well, then let's just get on with it and get the most that we possibly can out of every minute of this life because this is it. And so there were some in Corinth who did not believe in the resurrection and that's exactly how they were living. And so he asks the question and he just leaves it there. It's just hanging in the air. And then he closes this little section with a command. He gives a command to the believing Corinthians who do have hope in the life to come, who do believe in the resurrection. And the command is to distance themselves from these professing Christians who were denying the resurrection. Hey Mike, can you shut those blinds right behind you that are closest to the door or somebody? Thank you. So let's move to verses 33 and 34. This is the last section that we're going to see this morning. Here's Paul's command to the professing, to the believers there who believed in the resurrection, who had hope in the life to come. Hopefully that's a lot of you, most of you, all of you this morning. And so he says in verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's built up to that. He's been patient and he's taken his time to make his argument. He's been patient with those who are denying the resurrection, who are denying hope and the life to come. And he's tried to persuade them. And he's tried to argue with them. But he gets to the point here where he says to the believers, you need to distance yourself. If these professing believers are going to continue to hold to this, there is no hope in the life to come, you need to separate yourself from them. He says, do not be deceived. You can't keep company with these people without their beliefs rubbing off on you. Who do you spend time with? Is that who you want to be like? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Is is that what you believe? Don't be naive. 
It's a good word for us. Don't be naive to think that you can be friends with the things of this world with no consequence. Bad company ruins good morals, he says. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is saying, distance yourself from professing Christians who deny the resurrection and are promoting this self-indulgence. Separate yourself. And he's implying, isn't he? Surround yourself with like-minded Christians who are seeking to live for the glory of God and the good of others. So that's our text. We hope in the life to come. And because we have hope in the life to come, that is what enables us to surrender this life to Christ. Now for the Corinthians and especially for Paul, there were many personal sacrifices. Sometimes I feel almost ashamed that my faith hasn't led to more personal sacrifice. And that happens when I read about Paul's sacrifice and I read about the Corinthians or I read about Christians today. But for Paul, there were many personal sacrifices. Living for Christ meant losing family relationships. It has for some of you. Living for Christ meant putting himself into danger, physical danger. It meant putting a target on your back in the first century. It meant being unwelcomed in many places. And as you read Paul's writing, you get a good picture of surrender in his life. He had truly given up his life for Christ. He willingly gave up his freedom. He gave up rights. He gave up comfort. He gave up possessions. You remember there was a point where it was winter and he was so cold that in one of his letters he says, please bring me my coat. He gave up his reputation and position. He was well respected in the world. He was a leader among leaders. A man among men. He was looked up to. 
He gave all that up. He gave up security. He gave up his agenda. He gave up control of his life. And that is what it meant for countless Christians throughout history. Even today. But Christians throughout history like Martin Luther or John Rogers or Richard Wormbrand and Christians today in Somalia or Yemen or Uzbekistan, it means giving up so much. So what about you? What about us? What, what does it look like for us to surrender this life to Christ? What does personal sacrifice look like for us? Is the question to ask. J.C. Ryle, he was a pastor in England in the 1800s, and he said this, Many have a Christianity that they believe is enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. Here's how I process a quote like that. When I hear a quote like that, I, if I'm feeling bold and confident, so I don't always do this, but I ask myself as honestly as I can, though it makes me very uncomfortable, is that me? Is he talking about me? You know, I don't want to be too quick to say, no way, that's not me. Do I have a cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice? It costs nothing. It's worth nothing. Am I willing to suffer for Christ's sake? I hope I am. I believe I am. I think I am. By God's grace, I've been spared a lot of testing of that. But am I willing to suffer for Christ's sake? What have I given up? What have I given up for Christ's sake? What am I prepared to give up for Christ's sake? Am I prepared to give up my money? My time? My comfort? My reputation? Future? Control, freedoms, rights, my life? Am I willing to give that up for Christ's sake? Here's a question you can write down and maybe ask yourself this week as you look to apply this text. 
It would go like this. I am a blank with blank. What would God have me to do? I am a blank. What is your identity? Who are you? Right? I am a husband. I am a father. I am a pastor. I am a friend. I am a neighbor. I'm a coach. What are you? I am with. What do you have? What are the possessions that you have? They're from God. He's given them to you. What are the opportunities that you have? They're from God. He has given them to you. So I am, this is who I am, and I am with these things. This is what God has given me. And then the question, the surrender question is, God, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do with what you've given me? What would you have me do as a husband? What would you have me do as a father? What would you have me do as a pastor? What would you have me do as a citizen of this country? What would you have me do? It's not mine. It's yours. Not what do I want. Not what what am I going to do. But God, what would you have me do? That's the question that surrender asks. And it is our hope in the life to come that enables us to ask that question. You're not going to ask that question if you don't have hope in the life to come. That's the point that Paul is making. I mean, if this is it, forget it. This is not for anyone but me. But if paradise is in the life to come, if ultimate comfort, peace, joy is in the life to come, if this is where my life is ultimately headed, and this life is something that God has stewarded to me for His glory and for the good of others, then how I spend it is really important. So I believe, and I hope you do, the gospel that Jesus came and He lived and He suffered and He died and He rose from the dead in my place so that I could be forgiven of my sin and I could be reconciled to God to live for Him. Which means my time is His. My money is His. My future is His. My comfort is in Him. My peace is in Him. I know this is true. Then I'll close with this. This is question one from Hercules Collins, an Orthodox Catechism. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? What's your ultimate comfort? It's not your family. They're a sweet comfort for many of you. It's not your friends. It's not your church. It's not your reputation. It's not your accomplishments. It's not your comfort. You have one ultimate comfort in life and in death. And here's the answer. It starts with these words, that I am not my own. I don't belong to me. That I am not my own, but I belong 
body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him because of my hope in the life to come. I am enabled to surrender, to give up this life for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these words today and for this truth. God, we, will you help us to examine ourselves and to examine our lives? God, so many of us would say Thank you, God. You have been over the top gracious and merciful to us, not only spiritually, but physically and materially. You've given us so much, God. We know that every good gift comes from you, and so we're thankful for all that you've given us. God, help us not to spend it on ourselves. But God, give us an understanding of your grace that enables us to give everything up for your glory and for the good of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.